Wendy, thank you for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you here to help us gain a better understanding of the landscape of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. As a principal investigator and clinical research associate with the Center on Alcoholism, Substance Abuse, and Addictions at the University of New Mexico, I'm honored to have the chance to speak with you about the incredible work you've done to advance this important field. So let's get started. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your role and the work that you do in general, Wendy? Sure. And first, thank you very much for that kind introduction. I've been at this um, quite a while. I uh, was a, a stay-at-home mother for my children's early lives and then decided to go back to school. So I was a little, I mean, back to work. And so I was a little later to the um, work setting. And um, my background is in family studies and special education. So what I really am interested in is how families with all kinds of children with all kinds of abilities can make their lives work and promote the best possibilities for um, a child to succeed ultimately in life. And so for the first 10 years of my career, back in the, in the workplace, I worked on a multidisciplinary team um, here in the state of New Mexico. It was at that time, it was like the late 80s, that the entitlement services for early um, childhood services came, became a federal law. And at that, at that point in time, there really weren't that many people who could assess children at risk for developmental disabilities. So I went to work on our statewide team where we went out throughout the state. It was a multidisciplinary team. And there were were doctors, SLPs, motor people, um, and we all assessed children to see if they had need for early intervention. So I did that for about 10 years, and then I got involved in some federally funded special education um, programs and directed a few of those. And then in 1996, Phil May um, got in touch with me and asked if I would be interested in working with him just specifically on FASD. At that time, we were doing, he put me in charge of a program where we were working in four indigenous communities in the West and looking at fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and, you know, just trying to better understand um, the spectrum. Yeah. So, so it sounds like this is something that was really of interest to you, and then when he reached out, that's what really got you started down that path and interested in FASD detection and prevention specifically? Definitely. Okay. And and I think speci- more, more specifically for me, um, it was, I felt like, people were really worried about how many kids were affected by FASD. And just from my background, I was worried about affected kids really being able to receive the supports and services that they might need. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of was the hook for me. But then as I went on, I, you know, came to really appreciate more of the complexities that are inherent with the diagnosis, with the maternal risk factors and 
the whole prevention area. Right, and we do know that there are a lot of those complexities, as you mentioned. Absolutely. It's yes. just anything. The more you're involved in it, the more you realize how complex. And the more answers you think you have, the more questions arise. Right, which is why we're so happy to have you here to, you know, try and clarify some of that and that's look at the great. landscape today. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. So you mentioned that you're really interested in making sure that children that are affected have support and um, access to intervention. Your particular area of interest is also in early diagnosis and detection around FASD. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, yes. And we currently, um, it kind of makes my heart sing, within the last five years, we've had an NIAAA um, grant that where we've been able to actually work in South Africa with um, high-risk moms and um, children from the age of nine months to 22 months with wow. some early intervention, with the focus being on the actual relationship of the child with the mother. So, I mean, that just made my heart sing yeah. when we were finally able to get uh, an intervention project going that um, really considered both the mother and the child. And, you know, hap happily I woke up this morning and on Facebook our staff in South Africa were busy at, we collaborate with Stellenbosch University and they were at the academic day at Stellenbosch University presenting their posters on, on the, um, the model and the study that we're just completing. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great work. I'm so happy to hear that you guys are able to make sure that that connection is being made and look at that relationship because obviously it is very important to take into consideration. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, oh, you know, awesome. we'll, and we'll get to more of those topics as we go along, but um, there's a lot to, lot to talk about with regard to prevention and yeah. mothers and all of that. So. Certainly. Well, I do want to spend a little bit of time discussing the article that you were co-author of, the article mm -hmm. that's titled Prevalence of Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders in Four U.S. Communities, which was published in JAMA on February 6th of 2018. So what were some of the main takeaway findings from this study? Well, for one thing, we um, our funding source, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, was really truly interested in trying to get some kind of accurate um, prevalence figures for FASD because that just hadn't been done. And so they put out an RFP for um, people to, to respond to, to look at, go into actual populations and see if we could diagnose FASD in a typical um, first grade population. So we collaborated with um, University of North Carolina um, and University of California, San Diego, and of course the funding source as a consortium to put together um, six regional cohorts on and it, going into as many of the first grade classrooms as we could get into in those communities so that we could get really a pretty good idea of what the general population prevalence for um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders is. And so um, we found actually that our the prevalences from our study and um, the results of it that um, 
conservatively, it, uh, the prevalence is 1.1% to 5% of the children are affected by either FAS, um, partial FAS, alcohol-related neurodevelopmental deficits, or alcohol-related birth defects. Wow, yeah. I mean, that's that's a really big takeaway, and it sounds like the main goal is to just get an understanding of how prevalent is this, how many children are affected by this disorder, and you guys were able to do that. So congratulations. Well, thank you. It yeah. was a, it was a great um, collaborative and wonderful collaborators, so yeah, and a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I do want to elaborate a little bit. You chose to look at first graders for this study, and your article mentions that the five to seven-year-old range was optimal for identification of physical features and also suitable for early evaluation of neurobehavioral problems. Can you elaborate a bit on the age at which FASD tends to present itself in kids? Yes. Actually, um, the age that we chose was primarily driven by um, the geneticist dysmorphologist's belief that age six, is really a very good age to look at the physical features of FASD. So in typically, um, the dysmorphologists feel that a child from maybe age 3 through age 10 or 11 are the ideal ages to really discern the facial features and the growth um, features of FASD. Now, um, we felt like the first grade age was suitable for neurobehavioral testing, and we got some good results. But really, ideally, it might have been better to um, be able to do a neurobehavioral battery on children who were maybe closer to eight or in the okay. third grade um, of their school careers, um, just because it's a little bit early um, to be be doing a real good neurobehavioral battery. Um, so we got, we were able to do that. We had um, one of the issues is really a testing achievement in a six-year-old right. because just haven't really had that much opportunity right. at that point. And so we had a few challenges like that. But in the end, um, we had a, I think, a very good, valid. Um, battery that we were able to, one of the other criteria was that we really needed for the battery to be able to be administered by school psychologists, local school psychologists, in about an hour and a half to two hours. Um, okay. because, again, just time and resources were a consideration. Certainly. And, you know, it sounds like with every study, you learn something, and that's a lesson learned. But again, you guys were still able to capture some really great data um, looking at those first graders. So again, congratulations on that. Thank um, you. Yeah. Uh, data was collected over a six-year period. So why was it important to capture data during this time frame, Wendy? So our, our project really was funded for a five-year um, span of time. And we were fortunate enough to be able to get some um, carry-forward funds for that sixth year. Oh, wonderful. So, so really, the, the funding source dictated the time frame. But um, we needed that time because it was a big undertaking 
to go into um, the different communities and really develop relationships with the private and public schools in each um, community. And, you know, of course, school boards and people who had to had a vested interest in us entering their school with this research. And right, so, you have to get the buy-in. Absolutely, yep. <laughs> absolutely. And, um, you know, by agreement with the communities, I can't divulge the community names that we went into, but um, we were very, very appreciative of all of those communities, and, and everybody worked very well with us. And part of the key to that was that we had hired coordinators within each community who were of the community and knew the community well. And so that was also extremely helpful. I'm so. really happy to hear that you guys did focus so much on attention to the relationships and um, finding someone in the community that understood the needs of those specific populations. I think that that's absolutely going to have a better impact just on your overall results and the conversations that you had with both the teachers and the school districts and the kiddos and everyone involved. Yeah, and I just have to say we we had been doing um, in-school studies in South Africa for a number of years, for 10 years before we started this study. And it was interesting because it actually was a public health nurse in one of our communities when we were working on a different project who said, wow, you're doing these in-school studies in South Africa. Why can't we do those in the United States? Right. He, was, yeah. <laughs> he was kind of the impetus, really, for us to um, really politic with the NIAAA and everybody to kind of wrap their minds around, well, let's, we better tr let's try this in the United States. And um, so, you know, we have, we're kind of in her debt because she really felt pretty passionate about this happening. Well, that's wonderful. It's nice to have someone kind of remind us to bring it back home and see what we can find in our own communities. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, one thing that you highlighted in the article is that the CDC estimated in 2012 that the prevalence of autism spectrum disorders was 14.6 per 1,000 children. Um, and you talked about your findings for the rate of prevalence for FASD ranging from 11.3 to 50 per 1,000 children. This shows that FASD may indeed be even more common than autism, which tends to receive more exposure and recognition. So let's talk about that a little bit more. I want to kind of explore it and just curious, does this information tend to come at a surprise? Um, it didn't come as a surprise to us who worked in the field and um, worked in a number of um, prevalence studies prior to this big prevalence study. We, we also knew and believed that the prevalence was quite high and much higher than the passive surveillance rates that were coming out of different research. And so we really um, weren't that surprised, but we also felt like this was another important um, aspect of doing this research was to raise the awareness uh, of the public to Certainly. the extent of the issue in our population. And so we weren't so surprised, um, but we're hoping, you know, that this also can kind of spur more um, thinking programs, resources, et cetera. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, you know, and just kind of to elaborate on that even a little bit more, one of the statistics that really sticks out to me from the article 
is that of the 222 children who were diagnosed with FASD as a result of this study, only two of them had previously received the diagnosis. Why do you think this is? Is it stigma, misinformation, lack of resources or diagnostic services? What do you think it is, Wendy? Well, I think there are a number of reasons for this. Um, Number one, at this point, there really is not yet a consensus diagnosis for FASD. There are several schema out there. Um, there's the Institute of, Revised Institute of Medicine um, schema, which we used and have published. There's the four-digit code. There's the Canadian criteria. And so I think that's one sticking point at this point with FASD, and I think it would behoove the group, the FASD research and any stakeholders who are interested in FASD to come to some kind mm-hmm. of consensus on diagnosis. I think that's one big um, stumbling block. Um, also, I think because it has been stigmatized over the years, over the years, and um, I think there were for a long time people, and I think this still exists, there are people that have thought that this FASD only occurs in impoverished, more impoverished populations um, and, you know, people of lower SES. And, again, that's another reason we wanted to do this in general populations. We had done some prevalent studies in Italy a few years ago in the early 2000s, and a similar thing happened. I think the general thinking was, you know, we're not going to have FASD in our population. Um, And, in fact, we did find it. And so I think people's sort of bias um, has been part of what's driving driving this. And, you know, getting back to the autism question, autism has really been working on research for much longer than the field of FASD. Right, right. Yeah, and so – and – I think part of the reason that that's true is because FASD has been so stigmatized. And so, um, and I think another factor is that there are just, at this point, still not that many clinics who, that are equipped and ready to make, a, make FASD diagnoses. Okay, so along with having a different range of diagnostic criteria, there's also not necessarily the capability to actually provide the diagnosis because there aren't the services. So there's lack of resources in that as well. Exactly. I mean, I think that it, it's sort of like build it and they will come. Yeah. I think I think um, sometimes you have to show that there's really the need, which then drives the process of getting the, the kinds of services that are necessary in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, one of the hopes of this article is that, that this can help that cause for sure. It's like when I, I was in the early childhood diagnosis multidisciplinary team years ago, we didn't have very many, didn't have much of an infrastructure to provide services for young children. And we always grappled with that. It's like, well, here we're going out to these communities and we're saying these kids need help, but they don't have the services in place for them. But you have to know that the condition is out there and exists before you can really get the resources and services in place. So it's kind of... 
I hundred percent agree with you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And to kind of go off of that a little bit, I'm curious: were these children given other diagnosis prior to the ones who actually were diagnosed with FASD? So, which children? Uh, the the 222 who were diagnosed with FASD, are you familiar with the background, whether or not they were given other potentially inaccurate diagnosis? Um, we had, we didn't have medical charts okay. and medical um, files for each of the children, but we had a maternal interview with each child who consented to the study. Well, and some mothers fell away, and we didn't have exactly the same number of maternal interviews as we did um, children that we saw. If there was another diagnosis, we were able to consider that in our process. In one of the sites, we had a good setup where we could actually, some of the kids that were seen, the geneticist dysmorphologist um, thought that there might be, that there really wasn't FAS or FASD, but there might be another genetic disorder that might be looking like FASD. And so in that particular site, we were able to take a group of children that we saw and and we consented their families to do genetic testing with those children. Because one of the things that has come up over the years is that do we really know that FAS exists? Because Mm -hmm. it's really a a genetic... um, another genetic condition. And so we wanted to do that as well so that we would um, be able to better answer that question. Yeah, that's wonderful that you guys were able to look into that further. What um, other diagnoses do you typically see if a child does come in presenting um, symptoms or um, looking at looking as though they were affected by fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, what other diagnosis would they have maybe been given prior to? Well, um, one of the diagnoses that really can look quite a bit like FASD or FAS is 22Q11 deletion syndrome. And so um, that is, is a diagnosis that we saw in a few of the kids. Um, in our cohort and that we had have seen over the years in um, referral clinics and been able to then get that genetic testing done and in, in some cases correct the diagnosis um, from FAS to 22Q11. Okay, very interesting. All right. Um, do you think that just kind of continuing on and wrapping that piece of the puzzle up, do you think that some of these children are just given kind of like um, different behavioral diagnoses or learning disability diagnoses? Most definitely. I think one of the things that we have, and we're in, we're in the process right now of really um, looking at the data more carefully, the neurobehavioral data, and what we're finding is, which doesn't surprise us either, is that many of the children who are diagnosed on the spectrum don't have appreciable cognitive deficits, but they have more behavioral deficits mm-hmm. or deficits in specifically like executive functioning, you know, planning, sequencing, understanding, and that whole understanding the consequences of your behavior and all of those pieces fall under that rubric. And so I think oftentimes 
people are really looking at cognition, Mm -hmm. and we've known for a long time that oftentimes kids who are prenatally alcohol exposed have decent cognitive ability, you know, within the average range, but they're still struggling with school. And Mm -hmm. they struggle because they have some of these other kind of isolated issues in of uh, that are getting in the way of their success and definitely behavioral issues um, impulsivity some of the mood disorders attentional issues are coming out up more frequently with this population so we're like I say we're in the process of looking at that data right now and hoping to have a, a manuscript submitted within the next few months so we can really get more of the specific information about the children's developmental profiles out there. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the complexities, and these are certainly pieces of the puzzle who that add an additional level of complexity. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I mean, for a long time, I have been a proponent that, I mean, I, we do need to work on interventions that, that are helpful for a child with um, a diagnosis on the spectrum of FASD. Um, however, really with any child, you have to look at that individual child and you need to put supports in place for that child that that match with that child's needs. So Absolutely. Brings back that relationship piece. Absolutely, absolutely. And really knowing what those specific deficits deficits are, you can't like look at our big study and then extrapolate that specifically to one child. You have to look at that child in depth and see where his individual struggles are. Certainly. Um, Wendy, you mentioned that one of the things that you hope comes out of these findings is just an awareness of the prevalence of FASD and you know, building resources to support interventions for children affected. What else do you hope comes out of these findings? Well, and I also think it's important for um, the world to also gain a better and less stigmatized understanding of mothers who are drinking during pregnancy, that we can also, with compassion and empathy, align with moms who are struggling with addiction or um, some kind of mental health disorder that is really causing them to be in their addiction or some life circumstance that has really driven their um, inability to really get free from their addiction and really with, and I know this is in, in keeping with what you all are doing in Wisconsin, but um, just making sure that we work face-to-face and contact-to-contact with individual women and um, try to help them put their ambivalence about their own drinking because right. I firmly believe that women don't set out to harm their child when they're pregnant. Right, right. We also agree with that. You know, all moms want to be good moms, and addiction is what addiction is. And unfortunately, it's not always a choice for women. So we just work to make sure that we provide them with the support that they need to make decisions that feel right for them and help have the lowest um, possibility for their child to be affected. Um, which kind of brings me to my next question. I'm sorry, did you have something else to say there, Wendy? Oh, I just was, yeah. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> we are in agreement. <laughs> yes. 
Um, one thing that your article states is that a pattern of binge drinking in pregnancy is thought to present the highest risk of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders among offspring. Um, so speaking on that is, and kind of going into the addiction further, can you explain more about what this means and how pregnant women may or may not be able to drink alcohol safely, quote unquote safely, right, during mm-hmm. pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Well, maternal risks for producing a child with an FASD is extremely complex. And um, at this point, I mean, a lot of people are working on trying to find a biomarker that might help um, us know better about those risks. But um, we do know, our data just reveals over and over again that if there's heavy regular drinking or a binge pattern of drinking, that those mothers produce the most affected children. So that's being driven by the data. Mm -hmm. Um, And by binge drinking, we mean, you know, the NIAAA guidelines are four drinks in one setting for for a woman and five drinks in one setting for a man. And so, um, but there are many other co-occurring factors that have to be considered. And um, maternal age, increased maternal age has been shown to be a risk factor that can exacerbate the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure on the developing child. Um, The mother's um, body mass index and, you know, just how heavy or slight she is and then her nutritional status. And that's, those are just a few of the factors that also play a part in whether a child is affected or not. Um, and, and we really don't fully understand all of the biological factors at this point. Um, and a lot of continued research is going into trying to determine additional reasons that some children are affected and some children aren't. And so, in general, working one-on-one in an empathetic and compassionate way with a mother who's struggling with addiction during her pregnancy and trying to help that mother take a pause with her drinking, if at all possible, um, just seems like the best plan Yeah. the most respectful plan. And I agree. We have a lot of um, the women that we work with or the healthcare providers that we work with still having that question of why are some children affected and why are some children not affected, whether it's from the same mother in different pregnancies or different mothers and different children. So more research on that, but it is interesting to know that there are other factors to consider, such as maternal age, BMI, those types of things. Um, I've also heard that stress is something that can have an impact. Is there any more research on that that you know of, Wendy? You know, I don't know of the specific research on that. That's a good question. I should actually look, search that and see. But, I mean, it, it stands to reason because we do know that stress can wreak havoc on um, so many of our physical um, manifestations in general. I mean, with blood pressure and um, just all kinds of physical ramifications of stress and anxiety. Maybe and, that's the next uh, research area for you guys. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> Looking well, at stress, and- open up a bigger can of worms, right? 
Well, and isn't that kind of a vicious circle, though? Because, I mean, also because um, we know that oftentimes stress and anxiety and depression drive the alcoholism. And so so it would be, and there, and there may be a lot of good um, research out there that I'm just not familiar with. You've spurred me on. I'm going to have to search that. <laughs> and it continues to just give more... Uh, reason for looking at mental health and making sure that moms are receiving services they need for that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I do want to congratulate you again on the article being published. Um, I feel that having your article published in JAMA seems like a pretty big step towards getting the word out about FASD to groups that may otherwise be what I would consider outside of the FASD world. So what does a publication in JAMA mean to you? Well, um, Again, getting the word out and driving the development of consensus di- diagnostic procedures, hopefully, um, better and better funded and better executed prevention and intervention services for the affected children um, and prevention services for moms who are at the highest risk. And so um, it also compels all of us to look more at how to really help the kids who are struggling within the schools. And and I think that's a catch-22 also because sometimes I think a diagnosis and a label can be difficult for a family and a child going through a school system. And at this point, we really um, don't have a categorical diagnosis, FASD, that can get a child services in the public schools. In most cases, children with FASD fall under the other health-impaired category, and that's how they can be made eligible for services. Um, a good group of people have um, promoted um, NDPAE, neurodevelopmental prenatal alcohol exposed issues and they have, you know, gotten that criteria into the DSM as an experimental area to see if we could also use some of that for children who use that diagnosis for children who um, may really have some issues that could use mental health intervention. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're, you know, making some progress with all of that, but we hope that this JAMA article and and really the consortium's desire was to have these results in a pretty um, high-profile journal for all these reasons. Just, you know, we have to stop just counting numbers. We need to get to the... Um, public policy pieces and really um, soliciting greater funding and um, moving the field forward in that respect, kind of like autism. I mean, look at autism. Really gotten the high profile and um, a lot of funding and resources, and we would like to see that happen for this population group as well. And I will reiterate what you said earlier and say, hear, hear. (laughs) Yeah. Well, before we close, Wendy, I'd like to discuss a bit more about how healthcare professionals can use the findings from your study. 
Um, one of the things that we hear often is many women don't feel comfortable speaking honestly about their alcohol consumption, or they often underestimate their use. How can all of us working in this field help improve the quality of this data and help women feel less stigma in the process? Yeah, um, I again think it, this, the whole stigma field, um, Ken Jones and um, Kathy Mitchell with NOFAS have done some really good work on stigma at this point, and some of it is really quite interesting because it, their, their research is really showing that the general population has more disdain for women who are drinking during pregnancy than even their feelings around people who are dealing with a mental health disorder or other substance use disorders. And so, so it definitely calls on all of us to work with as much compassion as we can with the women who are struggling with Certainly. addiction. Yeah. And um, our center actually has kind of pioneered the motivational interviewing um, work where you really do align with an individual and try to help them with their addiction. And so, and and also the community reinforcement approach where you you call in the community of that woman to try to assist in helping her with her addiction and setting up the environment for success for her. And so um, I think I think the hope is that really there can be a lot of emphasis on prevention um, and the person-to-person -person contact. I mean, I think public education is important, but mm -hmm. the reason the stigma research is showing that actually the mono e mono person to person work is really the relationship. The, it comes back to it. That's it. Everything yeah. in the world comes back to the relationship, yeah. isn't it, Chelsea? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's one of the things, you know, I, I was interested in hearing too a little bit about is just more on those specific practices that you see being the most effective for assisting women. So it sounds like from the research that you've on stigma and just how we can make the biggest impact. It's going back to those one-on-one -on -one conversations, having women feel comfortable with the healthcare professionals that they've already developed those relationships with, and being able to share really intimate, personal information with someone. So building that relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, being in a non-judgmental state. Yes. All of that. Yes. That motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. And your research dates back to 2001. So how have you seen this field change over the last 17 years? That's such an interesting question, and it was fun to kind of reflect on that. I can remember one of the first conferences I attended on FASD in the early 1990s. Um, there was so much discussion about prevalence and epidemiology and drinking moms, and there was so little discussion about affected children and how to support those children. So, you know, in the intervening years, there have been some good studies done on interventions. The CDC has funded um, a series of, of interventions and a number of excellent researchers on specific interventional techniques. And so that makes my heart sing. Um, and I've also seen, like, around the world how this under, the understanding that FASD does exist has 
um, increased. There's been awareness and understanding around the world. In 2006, I was invited to London to speak at the Royal Society of Medicine. Oh, wow. And at that meeting, it was so interesting to me because the people at that meeting from the UK didn't believe that FASD really existed. In 2006, huh? And this was in 2006. Okay. And since then, and, and again, you know, they've replicated a lot of the work in looking at diagnosing kids, and they've come around full circle, and now they're doing a lot of great work um, in the FASD field. And so I think that's kind of astonishing to me, and all of the fantastic work that is being done in Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, so I feel like now you know, the field is coming to more of a consensus on the existence of this worldwide. And, you know, it isn't just little subpopulations that, that are affected by this. It's it's a worldwide um, issue for all of us to attend to. And then, um, you know, my I guess my, my biggest wish that I still have after all these years, is that the field really can come to some kind of consensus about diagnosis. Um, right. We know that women are drinking during pregnancy. We know that children are being affected. Now, how can we make sure that those children are getting the resources they need, which comes first with the diagnosis? Well, that's right. That's right. And I think there's there's power in a diagnostic um, schema that everybody can embrace and um then I think might be easier to leverage some of those resources. Yeah. Well, Wendy, I want to just ask if you have any closing thoughts or advice for professionals in Wisconsin working in FASD prevention and diagnosis. My main advice, again, and I sound like a little bit of a broken record, but um, that it's just of the utmost importance to meet mothers and families that you're working with. Um, where they are with a, an understanding of their situation and their um, what they are grappling with in their world and to focus on the mother's desire to have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy child because we know, as, as you said as well, we know that these moms love their children from conception um, and it's up to us to just really work with these moms in the best way we can to help the chi- them have a healthy pregnancy. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, I think you mentioned the word compassion earlier, and I think that that is something that can never be overlooked, is being compassionate, being understanding, meeting the women where they're at, and helping them navigate the pregnancy to the best of their ability. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I would hope that um, as the work continues, we can provide better educational and community services for families and children who are grappling with addiction or a diagnosis, um, whatever is a part of their family picture that they're struggling with. Yeah, I have that hope as well, Wendy. So. 
Well, I really want to thank you again for joining us today. We appreciate your time, your expertise, and your dedication to FASD awareness. So thank you so much for joining us today, Wendy. You're so welcome. Thank you, Chelsea.